Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we continue on in the third week of our Advent series, reading Isaiah 42, 1-9, one of the well-known servant songs of Isaiah. We talk about traditional interpretations of the servant, some which view the servant as the Messiah, but others which view the servant as the people of Israel, or by extension, the people of faith. In typical Bible womb fashion, we try to read it as both, a view of the Messiah we are waiting for and a model for how we should try to be in the meantime. In that light, we discuss Isaiah's vision of the servant as one who brings justice to the nations, not through violent retribution, but by showing gentleness and compassion to the most vulnerable. I have called you for a good reason, says God, to open blind eyes and to lead the prisoners from prison. That is what the servant is to do, and that is what you and I can do, even here and now, as we wait for God to do a new thing. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy. Hey, Bobby. How are you? I am doing pretty good. Head into the third week of Advent here on the Bible Worm. Indeed. And feel Christmas coming, which is both exciting and also stressful. (laughs) Like so many things in life. What is, does Christmas anything in your world? Like, do you think about Christmas? Okay. I don't like represent my people in this comment. I don't, I wouldn't deign to represent the Jews, but like, it's just pure fun for me. Like there's decorations, everyone's singing songs. Yeah. Like everyone's trying to give you cookies all the time. <laughs> yeah. I I personally imagine that it it would if I were trying to find like like deep religious meaning in it, it would be stressful to me because yeah. cuz all that stuff is is different than <laughs> is yeah. different. Is distracting is I don't know. I think I would find that stressful, but I mean Christmas is only really stressful for me because I am married to a minister. And so Christmas, it's like the high holidays. It's like the high holidays for the, for the Jews. Really lovely. If you are a person in the congregation, really high stakes. Really intense. Yeah. And it's hard to like have any kind of home practice and also be the head of a community because your practice is in the community. But then, I don't know. Yeah, with the holidays, I'm always like, what are my children experiencing? I really don't know. Yeah. Because what they're partially experiencing is their parents are out all the time. And bringing bringing them to synagogue two hours before the service starts so they can, you know, set up whatever. And yeah. Yeah. But there are lots of cookies. There are so (laughs) many cookies. Yeah. Many more than Yom Kippur. There's yeah. a real dearth of cookies <laughs> on Yom Kippur. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Amy, we are, we're in our last Hebrew Bible text of the narrative lectionary cycle. Mm, a poignant moment for me. It is. We may pick up yeah. a couple more in special episodes along the way. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, though. We're going to do a series next summer on the Hebrew Bible, though, and it's going to be amazing. I just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, the whole Hebrew Bible in one summer? No. Well, 
yeah, pick a focus. So this week we're in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 9, which is one of the kind of famous servant songs of the book of Isaiah, which we can talk about a little more as we go. Mm. What kind of orientation, like the book of the second part of Isaiah, which is in 40 to 55, more or less, mm-hmm. is kind of a distinctive set of literature. What do we need to know about that second part of Isaiah to get oriented today? So let me, I'll tell you some things. I'll tell you some things, and then you can add to those things. So this uh, section is sometimes called Deutero-Isaiah, Second mm-hmm. Isaiah. It, as you said, is is distinct from the first part of the book of Isaiah. I think most, most scholars, or at least many scholars, would agree that it, it was a different person holding the pen. This right. is not talking about Isaiah Ben-Amos. You know, it's, it's, this is a different person, and it's, seems to be set near the end of the Babylonian exile. So, you know, Jerusalem has already fallen. Many of the folks in Jerusalem have been taken into exile in Babylon. And that's where the speaker seems to be situated also and is is speaking to a, a pretty distressed exilic audience who, you know, have lived through a catastrophe and and trying to really make the case that the God of Israel is still here and powerful and loyal and will yet have victory in some way. Mm-hmm. The only other thing I want to add right now, and then I'll see what you want to add, is that I, th- I think this section of Isaiah in particular really likes to borrow vocabulary and uh, sort of ideas from other biblical texts and yes. rework it in different ways. It's, sometimes it's hard to pick up on those reading it in English, but where we can, we'll, we'll pull them out for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, what else would you want to add for this, Bobby? No, I really love that, Amy. I think, that's, I think that's exactly right. And just trying to inhabit that space of exile. And, you know, so the, the Babylonian exile, the, the first deportation was in 597. The destruction of Jerusalem was in 586. The end of the exile comes around 538. Mm-hmm. And so we might imagine that this part of Isaiah is being written close to that 538, sometime mm-hmm. right in there, you know, 540, somewhere in there. And so just to think about that, you know, these are the people of Judah have been in exile for almost 50 years. Yeah. Some people have just been born in the exile. They don't remember ever being in the homeland. It's been long enough now that, you know, for a little while, you probably think like, oh, this is just a temporary thing and it's it's all going to get better. It's been long enough now that it probably seems settled in. Like there's a whole new generation of people. This is the only world they've ever known. And so here then we have the second Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, showing up and offering a a word of hope. And like, it's really remarkable that there can be a word of hope in this moment. Sometimes I think that's hard to get get in that headspace when you're reading Deutero-Isaiah. Yeah. It it really is like a, a moment of hope in what seems like an impossible situation. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to just to just get into that from our sort of everyday lives or right. maybe, you know, we talked, you were telling me a little bit last week and maybe the week before too about the sort of the sense, the feeling of Advent. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's getting close now, you know, we're a couple right. weeks into it. So we're getting close to, to the big celebration. And I can imagine that it's hard to hold yourself in that 
in the weight of a reality that is not not what anybody wants, you know, and sort of hold hope in contradistinction to what is actually happening right now instead of instead of just being in the joy, joyful anticipation, you know, that right. I think that distinction really, really sort of like raises up the hope and I don't know, distinguishes it in a special way. I think that's exactly right. Okay, so this is just a nine verse text. And so I think we're just going to read it in two sections today. And then we'll dig into it um, that way. So I am going to start with Isaiah 42, one through four, and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. But here is my servant, the one I uphold, my chosen who brings me delight. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He won't cry out or shout aloud or make his voice heard in public. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't extinguish a faint wick, but he will surely bring justice. He won't be extinguished or broken until he has established justice in the land. The coastlands await his teaching. Mm. So, I I mean, I feel like the obvious first question is, who is the servant? Yeah. Who is this text talking about? That would be the big question. This is an enormously (laughs) vexed question in scholarship, as you know. But Mm -hmm. how do you get us started thinking about the identity of the servant? So let me tell you some possibilities. Everyone likes options, okay? I do. So so here are some options. Um, And these are all options that come from various areas of Jewish thinking. Yes. Through the years. So the servant could be King Cyrus of Persia, Mm. who is the king who eventually calls the Judeans back to Jerusalem and allows them to rebuild a temple and reestablish their religious practice there. Right. I think her name Ibn Ezra thinks that the servant is the prophet themselves. Right. That the prophet is, is... you know, feeling pretty good about their role in the world <laughs> is, uh, yeah. you know, is saying like, "Hey, y'all, I'm here. It's gonna be, it's gonna be okay." Yeah. There is a, str- a strand of thinking in in the Jewish world too that this is referring to the Messiah. Yeah, right. The Targum and Radak both think that this is, uh, yeah, that this this is going to be a leader who's going to to come and and bring about this peaceful time, and. My favorite answer is that this is referring to the Israelite nation as a whole, Mm. or maybe to the faithful people within the Israelite nation. Yes. And I will tell you that just reading this little couple couple verses, I wouldn't necessarily have jumped to that. Like that doesn't seem like the obvious thing to me. But even just later in this chapter— um, in verses that we're not going to read, it talks some more in verses 18 and 19 about my servant. And here it's listing the sins of the servant. Oh. You know, so yeah. listen, you who are deaf, you blind ones, look up and see who is so blind as my servant, so deaf as the messenger I send. The idea being, this is an imperfect servant, y'all. Like Israel is imperfect and God is in covenant with Israel anyway. And, you know, so it sort of holds that that kind of tension. Right. But I, I just have that in my mind as I'm reading these first verses. Like, it, it, it's not just exaltation of the servant that happens here. If you're looking at the whole chapter. Right. If you're looking at the whole chapter. Oh, that That's was really a lot of words. No, I appreciate that. Like, you put a lot of options on the table. And I think those, those are the ones also that I'm familiar with. I, 
I don't know, when you were like, maybe it's Cyrus the Persian, I was like, boo. (laughs) (laughs) That's boring. I don't know why. I just don't like that interpretation, but I think it's a a reasonable one. He's elsewhere in in Deutero-Isaiah referred to as God refers to Cyrus as my Messiah. So it's Mm -hmm. certainly the case that that sort of language does get used of Cyrus. This later description of like not breaking broken reeds and things like that. I'm like, that doesn't sound like a militaristic Persian king to me. Right. Of course, in the Christian tradition, the Messianic reading is the one that is typically preferred. And so that when you were talking about the Jewish strain of interpretation that reads the Mm -hmm. servant as a Messiah, Christianity has traditionally said yes. And the Messiah, as we know, in the Christian tradition is Jesus. And Mm -hmm. so this is referring to what Jesus is going to be like. And I think that's why this text is an Advent text in the narrative lectionary. And Christians mm-hmm. have understood the servant to be uh, Jesus in all of the servant songs. Yeah. To me, the one that you, are, that you are pointing to is also my favorite, that the servant is the people themselves. And I was going to point us back to 41.8, in which Isaiah says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, mm-hmm. whom I have chosen— offspring of Abraham, whom I love. And so there it is explicitly said that the servant is exactly Jacob, that is Israel, and the descendants of Abraham. And so it is clear enough, both what you were saying and also this verse in 41, that Isaiah does use the language of servant to talk about Israel and Mm -hmm. the people of Israel. And so I think it's very reasonable to say that that's what is happening here as well. Yeah. You know, I wonder, too, about a possible connection to Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This idea of, you know, I will put my spirit upon this servant. It's not exactly what it says in Jeremiah 31, but it says, I will put my teaching into their innermost being Mm -hmm. and inscribe it upon their hearts. And the context there is that, like, there will be this this magical time, this you know messianic time, however we want to talk about it, where where people who are servants of God won't have to remind each other. Like right. it won't be so hard. We won't have to remind each other to do the right thing. It's like we're going to be reprogrammed. Right. It's going to be deposited directly into your heart, and that's just another another way of thinking about when it says you know putting my spirit upon the servant that that there's some way that it's going to change our nature so that we don't need to be redirected all the time. Yes, I love that. So you're thinking about this idea of spirit, which I think, I love the way that you're thinking about that. So God's spirit empowers the servant towards certain kinds of things. And the certain kind of thing that is named here in verse one is, I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. And so it seems to be this spirit that you're talking about is gonna manifest itself exactly in justice to the nations. What do you do with that phrasing justice to the nations? What do you what do you think is going on there? I mean, the first thing I do is wonder about what the Hebrew is because my translation says she will teach the true way to the nations. Mm. So let me just look quickly. It's mishpat if that's what you're looking mm. for. Yeah, no mish, mishpat, it really yeah, that that would be justice. I like your translation. I mean, it just makes me think back to so many conversations that we've had this season yes. and so many conversations we had over the summer when we were focused on yeah. economic justice in particular, that what it means to be 
God's servant in the world, what it means to be a, a, a source of godliness on earth is specific, yes. <laughs> you know, and, and God has laid out over the course of the biblical text, what, what justice should look like. And it has laid it out in general rules and had lays it out in particularities and yes. has laid it out in case law. I mean, we've gotten a lot of examples of what, what Mishpat, what justice should look like. I love that you drew that out, that it's, that this is really a call towards setting up the, the world that is envisioned throughout the biblical text. Yeah. That series that we did this summer, talking with you about those texts has just, I mean, it's transformed the way that I'm reading all of these other texts. Like we, we keep coming back to it and back to it. Yeah. This justice here, I mean, it just reminds you exactly of Micah 6. He has shown you, oh mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? That same word that points back, as you were saying, to the Torah. And I, I keep thinking about our discussion of Deuteronomy 15, among other things, but mm-hmm. the pretty radical notions of debt forgiveness and leaving over food for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, like these very tangible actions of justice. And I think that I have often in my life just sort of floated above the ground with this notion of like, oh, justice, that's a nice concept. But when you really get into the biblical text and you notice the concrete actions that that involves, it really, for me, it has been transformative and I think in a challenging way, but ultimately in a positive one. You know, it's so interesting because, and I know we've talked about this before, like, yes, justice is a big and lofty idea and it is bigger than any one, you know, action that you can do. But what, what you said made me just now made me think of like what, when I'm unsure, (laughs) when I'm unsure what would be the just thing to do, like here, do this thing. Like here's, (laughs) here's some examples, do that and then see what happens. Like how that will transform in much bigger ways yeah. or, or many other ways, the nature of our relationships and, and how the world works. I love that idea that the Torah doesn't necessarily exhaust what justice looks like, but it sure mm-hmm. gives you some important starting points to see what else develops. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me that it's, he will bring justice to the nations. Yeah. La goyim, uh, to the, I mean, I think that's referring to the not Jewish people, right? To the Gentile people. Yeah. So if you read, if you read the way that you are suggesting, which I think is a great one, or I mean, whichever way you read it, but the people of Israel, the servant are going to bring justice to other nations beyond themselves. Even though at this exact moment, they're in exile Mm -hmm. in Babylon like that. There's just a lot going on right there. Can you help me unpack that? I mean, it's funny. When you first said that, the first thing I thought was like, why? Because they've figured out how to create their own just society within Israel. Like, I don't think they have. Like, like, why are, you know, why are we expanding? I'm just trying to like inhabit what, what it would really feel like to be in exile at that moment and how it would feel different to say like, you're going to, you're basically going to get your act together, Israel, and, and, you know, create for yourself a just world versus like elevating that a little bit and saying you have the capacity, the God given capacity to transform in a much bigger way. 
it's such a silly example, but I'm thinking of how many kids in my religious school program, it's like 100% of them, would rather be the helper and teach someone else than actually sit down yeah. <laughs> and do it themselves. But you also can learn by being the helper. Right. So I guess, I don't know, I'm just thinking about what it means in this really like low moment for the people to set, to, to raise this vision that's so, that's so big and lofty and, yeah. I don't know, honorable. Yeah, no, I love the way you've said that. And so it's not just that you're going to be okay, you exiled people, but you are going to transform the world by what you're going to be able to do now that the spirit is upon you. And something about the way that the servant is going to be in the world is going to not just make an internal transformation for the people of Israel, but it's going to be an example or some, an inspiration or something to the other nations. Do you think this interest here in the nations is, is rooted anyway in the fact that they are among the nations right now, that they are, you know, living among other folks? I mean, I think that that's such an interesting way to read it because, you know, the people have, of Israel have been brutalized and exiled and had their homeland destroyed and been displaced from their land. And then here the vision seems to be that these nations that have done this to you, you're going to be able to show them what justice looks like. Mm. So it's not just like random, randomly showing some people. I mean, there may be some random peoples involved as well, mm-hmm. but I, I do think there's a sense in which the people, the people where you have gone you're going to be able to show them what justice looks like, even though what they have shown to you is the opposite of justice. Yeah. Mm. The description of the way that justice is going to be, like the, what this servant is going to be like is so interesting to me because it's, it's this series of knots, right? He mm. will not cry out or shout. He will not make his voice heard in public. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not extinguish a faint wick. So it's not going to look like that, y'all, but he will yeah. surely bring justice. I, that, that is just such a striking image. Because like when I think about like, what does justice look like? I'm like, you're out in the streets and you're yelling and you're like, you know, fighting for people and doing all these things. But this is not that. What do you do with that description of the things that the servant will not do? It's so interesting because on the one hand, yes, I have that, you know, we just were talking last week about Esther and about the importance of Mordecai's oh, yeah. yelling in the streets, exactly. you know, like raising a fuss. That's what, you know, that's what brings about sort of justice in that story. But the other thing I was thinking about when, when a people has been brutalized in this way, which we also see at the end of the Esther story, they're... I mean, my understanding is just sort of sociologically, often there is a sort of fantasy about justice being a total reversal. So the way that we have been brutalized, now that group of people will be brutalized. And this just stands in such immense distinction to that. Like it is the most quiet and exceedingly peaceful image yeah. I don't know how that would actually, I, I don't know how that would actually work to bring about change without even raising your voice in the street. I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know, but yeah. I don't know. It's just a, it's a powerful, powerful difference to me. How, how do you, 
how do you wrap your head around that description? That was really helpful. And I, I think I, I think I interpret this along similar lines. And it, for me, it comes back a little bit to the, that what we were just talking about, about the servant will bring justice to the nations. And here it's by showing a different way. Mm-hmm. So nations think that what we're supposed to do is flex our muscles, use our might, like use violence and coercion to uh, establish justice. And what the servant is going to do is show that, in fact, true justice is not about that. It's an act of compassion, an act of, I don't know, solidarity or gentleness. And that other nations are going to look at that and they're going to see, oh, what we thought was justice is not actually justice. There is a way of generating a just world that is not about violence and coercion. Mm -hmm. To me, it's really important in verse three that, so he won't break a bruised reed. He won't extinguish a faint wick. And so like the bruised reed and the faint wick, like those are to me images of people, communities that are really struggling. They've already been wounded. Their light is about to go out. And so there's a real gentleness. Like if you come in forcefully, into a community like that, you could break a people that's almost broken. You could extinguish a people that's almost extinguished. But so you come in gently uh, and you rehabilitate and you encourage and you invite, you do gentle things that restore people's faith and restore people's light and restore people's energy. And then so the community, the community is regenerated and a just community arises out of the sort of gentle attention to the most broken and mm. the most flagging of people. And that's where justice comes from, not sort of attacking the powerful, but mm-hmm. uplifting the, the weakened. Something I really like that. love that, Bobby. I, I had, I love that. I had initially read that verse as like, this person's so gentle they wouldn't even break a reed that was already kind of messed up. Like they're mm-hmm. not going to do this like grand act of destruction, but even the little act of destruction of like putting out a light that's already mostly out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but I like your reading so much more that it is precisely because the reed is already bruised and because the light is dim that it needs to be approached with this right. gentleness. Yeah. That's beautiful. Then verse four kind of flips that image a little bit. He won't be extinguished mm. or broken until he has established justice in the land. So he's treating people gently who are already extinguished and broken, but then there's also this sense of he's not going to be extinguished or broken himself, at least for a period of time, which is kind of interesting. Like maybe there is a, a breaking or extinguishing that can take place once justice has happened. I don't know. How do you read that? Like he won't break or extinguish he won't be broken or extinguished in verse four. Again, it's so different than my experience of how power works in the world. Like it seems like if you are if you are being that gentle, you are putting yourself yourself at like bodily risk. Yeah. Because there are real forces of violence in the world that you oh, are yeah. up against. And if you don't respond with violence that that you would be crushed, you would be broken. And so this is a a statement, a vision that you have to trust that that won't happen. You have to trust that that won't happen, that you can 
move through the world with that kind of gentleness and endure. Mm-hmm. That's it's such a, a beautiful, tall, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. The ask is so big there, but such a beautiful yes. idea. So yes. it's not that this servant is like a big softy, right? He was just like being gentle to like only being gentle, but also there's a sort of internal strength that refuses to bend or be broken, even while tending to those who are broken and, 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 and faint. And that, so that, that combination of being strong, strong enough to withstand and also gentle enough to rehabilitate. You know, I was trying to think like, what does that even look like? And I was thinking about somebody like Martin Luther King. Yeah. And both like the nonviolent resistance approach that lifts people up instead of enacting violence against oppressors, but also the internal strength that's there. But then in the end, you know, the forces of coercion and violence extinguished him. Right. And so this like, Yes. He won't be extinguished until he has established justice. Like to me, there's a little bit of a loophole there, right? Like it is not that this person is inextinguishable. It is that this person brings mm-hmm. justice, even though maybe it's going to cost them their life at the end. Which really raises up the idea that, you know, however I may feel this as a human body, uh, a human with all my fears of mortality the servant is not really the point. Right. The servant is bringing about the vision. And when the vision has been brought about, you know, whatever will happen will happen, but it's not, yeah, it's not the kind of, uh, you don't have like special protection forever. Right. The point is that you have, the servant has the honor of helping to bring forth this godly vision on the earth. And it is the, you got to like keep your eye on the prize. Uh, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, as when you're reading through a Christian lens and you think about the servant as Jesus and you think about the gospel, like that, that's the way the gospel plays out, right? It's that Jesus brings this gentle, just kingdom and, and he gets killed for it. But he's, but he started something or at least continued something that is uh, a radical revisioning. Mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of thing this passage has in mind, whether we think of it as Jesus or if we think of it as the people of Israel, or if we think of it, I mean, you know how I am. I like to think of it as both of those things at the same time, yeah. which, which we can come back to. Yeah. This line at the end of the section, the coastlands await his teaching, mm-hmm. always stands out to me as like, I don't know. It just doesn't quite seem like it fits or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you do at the coastlands? I, yeah, I agree. It, it seems a little... Like, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit. Like, even the people away at their beach houses. Like, well, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, the the best I've come up with is the people who are far away from the cities. Like, the people who are. Mm, yeah. People who are far away will hear about this and, and, you know, be included in this vision. Do you have something better than that? No, I mean, that's the way I read it, too. And, you know, I wonder if it's the coastlands, sort of like the one way of talking about coastlands would be like the Mediterranean basin, right? Like the, the massive sea to the West of mm. Israel where, which was kind of how the world was organized in that period. And so maybe this is saying like, there is a far reaching, 
like not just like people at their beach houses, although maybe that too, but also like people <laughs> in very far away places are going to be eager to hear how this thing happens and what this justice looks like. Some people have interpreted that as people who have no connection to the servant or to the people of Israel are going to be interested in the teaching. Some people have interpreted interpreted it as Jews who are exiled far away from the homeland are going to are awaiting the teaching. Mm-hmm. So whether exactly coastlands means non non-Jewish people far mm-hmm. away or Jewish people who have been sent far away is not is a matter of some some dispute. But I think either way, the point is is what you're saying, that people who are not immediately in the presence of the servant are eager to hear about this new justice thing that, that the servant is doing. Can I ask you a big question that you can say we should push to the end if you don't want to talk about it now? Sure, of course. So I, over the past few weeks, we've talked about, like we've encountered some like almost apocalyptic descriptions of the world starting to fall apart in anticipation and like fear and something new is being born. And, you know, we've sort of talked about how, how things get, things get, (laughs) things get pretty stressful before a birth. Right. And, you know, later in this chapter, God is depicted as going forth like a warrior and screaming like a woman in labor. And it is not peaceful imagery. How do you hold these ideas or these images together in thinking about like what it would actually look like to inaugurate a a time of God's justice in the world? That's such an important question, Amy. And I, I mean, there's a lot, a lot to think about in that question. To me, you know, you need both of these images. You need the image of the world that is in turmoil because the world is in turmoil. And if you have images that say that it isn't, they, they're sort of misleading. Yeah. Because, I mean, just the world that we inhabit is like, it's messy and it's violent and it's complicated. And there is a lot of pain and a lot of crying out and a lot that needs to be undone in order for something new to be done. And we've talked about that, as you were saying it for a couple of weeks. But at the same time, if that's the only imagery that you have, it's really overwhelming to think like it's, it's all pain and screaming and undoing of things. <laughs> yeah. Here you have the other image, which is within all of that, it is possible for there to be one or there's possible for there to be a people that in that messiness exists in such a gentle way that those who are being broken and those who are being bruised and those who are having their flame extinguished can be nurtured back to strength, even while all that other stuff is going on. And so like, practically speaking, I don't really know, like how do you wake up on a Tuesday and <laughs> live like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But having those two images, and maybe that's why there's sort of two images that sort of get worked out in different ways is because they're right. really hard to put together into one coherent image. Right, there's no scene where they like this peaceful, servant meets up with the God who's screaming like a woman in labor. Like (laughs) they're kept, they're kept apart. (laughs) Exactly. But I do think there's something interesting in that mixture about it is possible for the world to be transformed gently, even while the upheaval is going on. Mm. So to not get 
overly much caught up in the like craziness of, of the yeah. transformation. Yeah. I don't know that that was super. No, that is but. helpful to me because it also, it had me thinking back to sort of, again, the context that we're in, like their world is already falling apart. Exactly. And this is encouragement here not to, not to meet that with further destruction, but to, but to imagine, imagine a, a possibility of really gentle transformation. I also wonder if there's, because, you know, in the next section, which we're not reading, it's God, uh, the Lord will go out like a soldier. Yeah. And so I wonder, too, if there's a different role that's being envisioned for the people here mm-hmm. than is being envisioned. So God's the one who goes mm-hmm. out like a soldier. Yep. The yep. people are the yep. ones who tend the broken wicks. I don't know exactly what it means, practically speaking, for God to go out like a soldier. Like, in what, in what way does right. God do that? Mm-hmm. But the call for us, if you read it that way, is not to go out like soldiers, but to tend the broken. Yeah. And trust that that other part sort of works itself out. Hi, I'm Terry Peterson, minister of St. John's Church of Scotland in Gurich, west of Glasgow on the Scottish coast. And I am the liturgy writer for Bible Worm, which means I get to spend a lot of time listening to Bobby and Amy. And that is a great joy. It is fascinating to hear them read and talk through stories I thought I knew pretty well since I'm starting my third time through the narrative lectionary now. I always come away with more ideas than I can fit into a liturgy or a sermon, and working with them has deepened my own spiritual life as I write liturgy that follows the contours of their conversations. I appreciate that they don't shy away from the difficult parts and that they always find connections between these ancient texts and our contemporary life. And it's fun for me to work those connections into liturgy that empowers worshiping communities to speak to and about God in new ways. If you join the Bible Worm Patreon at the Liturgy Worm level or higher, you'll have access to those liturgies and prayers that you can use or adapt, as well as early access to the podcast. Or there are other levels with different benefits, including Bible studies, access to the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this incredible resource for people of faith around the world. And now, back to this week's podcast. Well, let's move on to the second part of this text. We get a little bit of direct speech from God and about God. So maybe this will give us a little more sense of what's going on. Picking up in verse five, God, the Lord says, the one who created the heavens, the one who stretched them out, the one who spread out the earth and its offspring, the one who gave breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you for a good reason. I will grasp your hand and guard you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to lead the prisoners from prison and those who sit in darkness from the dungeon. I am the Lord. That is my name. I don't hand out my glory to others or my praise to idols. The things announced in the past, look, they've already happened, but I'm declaring new things before they even appear. I tell you about them. So the first part of this text is a description that Isaiah seems to give about what God is like. 
God, that is the one who creates, the one who stretches out, the one who spreads out, the one who gives breath. Yeah. What do you take from that imagery that's used of God right there? I think it's so interesting that it takes us all the way back to creation. Yes. We're going to go to the way back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it, I mean, the first thought that, that sort of came to mind is, you know, they, they, people live in the created world and that's the world that we can see and touch and the world that, you know, immediately impacts our, our bodies and our lives. And it's really easy to sort of reify the created world as though that's the, this is reality, right? I'm being practical. This is reality. This is the world. But then once you sort of back it up and it's like, well, yeah, this is, this is a reality, but there's a, there's a bigger reality. There's a like preceding reality and if God created all this, then God can create something else. I think that's exactly right. And we get that language at the end about I'm declaring new things, like God is in the act of creating something new here. And so exactly to go back and say, look, I created this thing once. I can create this thing again a different way. I think that's exactly right. The image of giving breath to the people and life to those who walk on the earth, like to me, that is like, God's fundamental character in this text is is as a life giver. Mm. And so if I have given you life once, then why would you think that this is, that I would abandon you now? And so the one who's given life in the past can give new life in the future, I think is an important image. Yeah. The beginning of, of God's actual speech here is, I've called you for a good reason and I give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. Maybe this just goes back to what we were talking about earlier, but there, this idea that there is a purpose and that it's for someone beyond the servant seems really important in this text. Is there anything to yeah. say about it here that we hadn't already talked about in that previous part? I'm really moved just by the image of God grasping oh yeah grasping you by the hand like especially in this you know in this moment where they feel so downtrodden and you know undignified and powerless this this idea of being grasped by the hand both to me feels like the way you would like reach up and hold your grandparents hands like reach up and hold the hand of someone who's who's bigger than you and more powerful than you and also the way that makes you feel special, you know, yeah. to, I don't know. There's, there's, a, there's an intimacy about it. That's not just like I anointed you or right. I crowned you or I whatever, like I grasped you by the hand. Yeah. That's beautiful. The previous language has been he, right? The servant. I put my spirit on him. Mm. Now it's, I grasp you by your hand. Mm. And so there is a much, both in the language that's become more personal and the imagery yeah. has become more personal. I really love that. Bobby, my translation has, a, has this in the past tense. Oh. It looks like past tense to me in the Hebrew. Yeah, and the Hebrew is perfect. I guess there is that, remember that whole conversation we used to have in graduate school the about the prophetic past? past? Mm-hmm. So yeah. certainly, is it going to happen that we can talk about it in the perfected aspect? I don't know exactly what to do with that, but let me ask you this. If you mm-hmm. read it in the past, I'm so curious what 
like how that, if you read it, like I, I think the Hebrew can be read either way. I think the Hebrew way. can be read either way. Yeah. And so the question of what difference does it make if you read the whole thing in the past, I think is an interesting one. So when you were, when you were prepping this text and you were reading it in the past tense, what were you doing with that? I mean, to me, it seemed sort of a, a natural extension of going back to creation. Yeah. You know, God created the world and, you know, my translation is in my grace have summoned you mm. and grasped you by the hand and given you this special role. Like, this is not a new role, this covenant people. Like, this is, this is the role you have, you have had for a while now. Mm-hmm. So I guess it feels more like it's not something new. It's a reminder of who you are and who God created you to be, as opposed to like a totally new vision. I really like that. And I like, I mean, I always say this and it's probably annoying, <laughs> but if you like take the translational ambiguity and you just say, yes. Mm-hmm. then what you get is this has always have been my relationship with you. And therefore in the future, this is what my relationship with you is going to be. Mm-hmm. So like, this is not a new and different thing, but also it's not only a past thing. It is an ongoing mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. I was looking at the Hebrew and where my translation has in verse five, give life to those who walk on it. The mm-hmm. Now there's actually Ruach, give spirit, Mm. which is the same thing that God had said about the servant all the way back in verse one. Mm -hmm. So there it was, I put my spirit upon him. Here it's, I've given my spirit to you. I don't know. I don't know. I just think like the two parts of this text are mixing together in such an interesting way for me. This thing that we have been saying previously about the spirit now is about as about people more broadly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here it's, and here it's, you know, Ruach is going to everyone who walks upon the earth. Like this yeah. is not, not only is it not just a single Messiah, it is also not just the people Israel. Like That's it is right. everyone. That's right. But then within that group, there is some you that has been or is being summoned in particular. Yeah, that's exactly right. So God in verse six says, I'm, I'm leading you. And then in verse seven, we get the, best, the specifics to open blind eyes, lead prisoners from prison, those who sit in darkness from the dungeon. That's just like that dungeon imagery, prisoner imagery, just very strong right there. Yeah. I don't know how, I don't quite know how we should read that though and what it has to do with opening blind eyes. What do you do about the, like, I'm going to take you by your hand to do these things, and those are the things? That's such a good question, because now, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to our conversation about Mishpat earlier and, like, the, the essential concreteness of that. And so then that makes me think, like, is this a metaphor? Mm-hmm. Or are we talking about, like, literally? Yeah. Or both, you right. know, as, as, which is always our favorite answer. <laughs> both, yeah. Yeah, or both. And I know there is, is real concern in the Torah about sort of false confinement, you know, about, about what happens to people who are, who are imprisoned, who shouldn't be imprisoned. Right. 
And so it could be that this is a call specifically for that kind of mishpat. I also think it's a really powerful metaphor for the things that hold us back from living a a full life or a real mm-hmm. life or what you know, like however you'd want to describe that that ruach that we want to have coursing through right. our veins. There are a lot of things that hold us back from that. I really I love both of those answers, and I want to linger for a minute on the concrete one mm-hmm. because I mean I think where where you're headed is. R- interesting. And, you know, I don't think this is necessarily like saying, let's let the ax murderers go free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you think about like the reasons that people are in prison and you, you mentioned people mm-hmm. who are wrongly imprisoned and it brings me back to the economic implications of Deuteronomy mm-hmm. and then the economics of imprisonment. I think in the ancient world and in our own world that people who are poor are more likely to be imprisoned yes. in various ways In the ancient world, sort of literally debtor's prison, like you can't pay your debt, so you go to prison until you work off your debt. But today we have all sorts of versions of that. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that's not just the ancient world. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) we don't call it debtor's prison. (laughs) We don't call it debtor's prison, but... in the cash bail system and all of Exactly, right. Yeah, and so there is an economic imbalance in the way that imprisonment is practiced. And so justice is exactly that. Intervening in the unjust economics of the prison system. And I think if you read it that way, then the opening blind eyes to me becomes a metaphor for the ways in which those of us who are not imprisoned tend to, uh, like the expression to turn a blind eye, I think is exactly the right expression here. People who either are not able to see the way that the debt system works or people who choose not to see the way the debt system works, suddenly they're going to, we're going to see, and then we're going to set people free. Yeah. I think that's such a powerful vision of what, you know, what justice means, what having the spirit of God on you looks like, that you can Mm -hmm. suddenly see the way the world actually works and you can take steps to restore people who have been wrongly imprisoned or or, who are suffering because of the, because of the system. I think that's such a, I think that's such a powerful image. I love that, Bobby. And it throws me back to the, the beginning of this section where it's talking about creation and God who who gave breath, gave ruach to the people upon it and life to those who walk thereon. Yeah. And this idea that like putting someone in prison is, you know, yes, you can still have an intellectual and spiritual life in prison, but you you really are confining. They, they can no longer work on, well, they can no longer walk the earth as God. Yeah you know, as God established in the first place. And it's, um, yeah, I don't know, thinking about it that way makes it seem like an awfully sort of chutzpah thing to, to say, you need to sit in this prison. Yeah. Especially for economic reasons. Yeah. And when you think about Deuteronomy and the links that the Deuteronomic code goes to, to make sure that people who are, who could be thrown into prison for economic reasons are not. So they have food that's left over and given to them and they have debts forgiven every seven years and all of these things like that is the sort of freedom of people to live their lives and walk on the earth. I love that image, that connection. That's very much at the heart of the, of the Deuteronomic, the the Torah code. And, and here that's being valued. I think that's important. 
Do you remember that passage that we read in Leviticus 19 this summer? And it was like, I am the Lord. And then had all these like, so do these just things. And then I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And that's sort of like the, the combining of God's proper name just after this call to do justice and open your eyes and let the prisoners free. Like, I just, it just seems really important right there. Like, set the prisoners free. I am the Lord. That just, it sounds like the Torah to me again. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I will not yield my glory to another. What is, what does that mean? I'm guessing that glory is kavod there. Let me check. It is. I mean, it's, I always think of the word kavod as, you know, we, we use it in modern Hebrew as like respect. It's sort of like gravitas, weightiness, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, even that the whole idea of God yielding God's own kavod glory gravitas to someone else is, is kind of crazy to me, but this, this statement, I don't know. It just, it, I guess it rings the same bells for me as sort of starting with creation. Like this is my system. Yeah. I created this system. I am not turning it over to someone else. Yeah. I have called upon you for specific things and you know, you have to you have to trust even though everything looks like it's falling apart around you that i have not seated my throne yes. and and it, it it's going to move in the direction that i want it to move in it takes me back i don't know that it's trying to take take me that there but <laughs> um whenever i read that is my name i i go back to the 10 commandments and do not take the lord your god's name in vain or i think the better translation is something like don't invoke the name of God for things that are not worthy of God. Mm. And so it, right here in this context, it sort of has to me the connotation of if you're going to invoke my name, if you're going to be my people, it needs to be about things like we just talked about, opening blind eyes, letting people out of prison and you know forgiving debts and those sorts of things. If you're lifting up my name, and for other purposes or to gain glory for yourself or to justify causes that are not actually godly causes, mm-hmm. then you are running afoul of the, of God's will. And I mean, I just think about the world and all the ways that God gets invoked for all kinds of ridiculous things that I tend to think God doesn't much care about. And here God is, is exactly saying, here's what I care about. So go do that and stop like, Mm-hmm. trying to use my name for things that are not about me. Cause I don't, I don't lend out my name for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's reminding me of, I love that connection and it's throwing me back even a little earlier in the text when Moses first meets God and says, who are you? Like, I'm going to have to, t- <laughs> I'm going to have to tell the people, I have to give them a name. Like who should yeah. I say is yeah. going to set them free. And it's almost like this, you know, reminder here, this reintroduction, like, that's me. I, you know, like, I don't know. I keep thinking about this text being set in a time where people need, need a boost of confidence that God is still God. And so identifying with that name that's first introduced. Yeah. Explicitly introduced. Yeah. Right before the Exodus seems powerful too. This has me thinking about Christmas again. 
and the ways in which God's name at Christmas is lended out to all sorts of idols. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like the whole Christmas season, which is meant to celebrate the arrival of the Messiah in the world in the Christian understanding, the transformation of the world for God's justice. And, you know, we're using it to sell Lexuses or whatever. So it is so uh, hard. Christmas in American culture is so hard. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked just briefly about this last verse nine, but to me, I don't know. It's just such a powerful verse. The things announced in the past have already happened, but I'm declaring new things before they even appear. I tell you about them. I both love that verse and don't fully know (laughs) what to do with it. (laughs) What do you see when you read that? Yeah. You know, we're, uh, this might be a kind of lame answer. I don't know. I'm, I'm, so every month the kids at my religious school have a particular like, gosh, what's the word? Like, I, I think the Christian term would be sort of like gift of the spirit that we're learning about. And, and this month we're learning about emunah or faith. Mm. And we've been talking a lot about sort of what are the things that we really believe in at the end of the day, like for real. And how do you become a person who is trustworthy? Mm. You know, how do you inspire faith in, you know, from other people? And that's what this makes me think of. Like I, the things, the things that were predicted before have happened. So like you should have Mm. that, you know, like that's the, that's the best way to inspire faith is like, (laughs) like do the thing you said you were going to do. And then people will be more likely to believe the next thing you say you're going to do. So that, I mean, that's largely how I'm seeing this. Like we've been through this before. There were things predicted and they happened. So you have to, even though it seems unbelievable in this moment, in the created world that you are in, Mm. Mm -hmm. you have to believe you have reason to believe, you have reason to have faith that something, that this other thing that I'm telling you can happen. I really love that, Amy. And I think I read it the opposite way. <laughs> Great. Tell me. <laughs> which I, which I don't know. So this is the way that I was putting it together before you just said what you said, which is, opposite's not right, but, you know, the beginning of second Isaiah begins with that Comfort, oh, comfort my people. Mm. Tell Zion that her sins have been paid double. And so there's a sense in which Second Isaiah understands the exile as having been punishment from God. Mm-hmm. And that then there is a future, right? So that, that's been done and there is a new future coming. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of reading this in that light. The mm-hmm. things that I said in the past about how you deserve to be punished, mm-hmm. that's what I said in the past, mm-hmm. and that's already done. And now there's this new thing that's coming. And so even though your current situation is a result of what happened in the past, mm-hmm. your future is not about that. Mm-hmm. Your future mm-hmm. is about this new thing that I'm saying And so stop living in the past and stop thinking that the past defines you because I'm giving you something else now. Yeah. Gosh, that has me, I don't know why exactly, but that has me thinking about the line from that famous quote from Brian Stevenson, you're better than that. Everyone is better than the worst thing they've ever done. Mm -hmm. Is that the quote? It's close to that. And then about sort of going back to the conversation about, you know, imprisonment and, and, 
yeah, this idea that, I, yeah, I don't think that's so different from from what I was saying. It just ties the suffering of the current moment directly into the things that were mm. foretold and carried out already. Right. But now there can be something, now there can be something new. Mm-hmm. I love that. Actually, I really like that where you just went with that to connect those things together. So it's not forget about the past and embrace a future. It's acknowledge the past and realize that I have done what I said and I will again do what I've said. And what I am saying is, here's yeah. the new future that I have for you. So you're not confined to what has happened in the past, but what has happened in the past is part of the story that le- that gets us right. to the You have to see the broader context of it. Mm-hmm. And that's so hard in these short human lives that we have. <laughs> But yeah, you have to see it in the broader context. All right, Amy. So that brings us to the end of this passage. I'm so curious what you're thinking about when you look at this text and you think about the world that we live in today and the communities that you belong to. What is a word that you want to pull out for today? I think what is, what's, what's rising up for me is maybe a combination of two things that, that we talked a little bit about. One is, again, I'm just so taken with this image that, you know, I and my grace have summoned you and grasped you by the hand, mm, you know, yeah. as a phrase being offered to people who are at their, it's, it's at their lowest point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's so, it's so easy to have sort of the voice in my head that says, like, who am I to think that, that I'm the one who's being, you know, like, who am I to think that God has something in mind for me? But to also ask the question, like, well, who are you to think God doesn't, you know, like, okay, fine. We don't know. We don't know, no. But to be willing to take seriously the idea that, that there's something we're supposed to be doing that is bigger than ourselves and our individual suffering, though that suffering is real and yeah, be willing to, I don't know, expand our minds into, into what that might be even in the face of all the things we know we've done wrong mm-hmm. and all of our shortcomings. And, you know, again, as you were just saying, like not, not pretend those things didn't happen, but be willing for them not to write the rest of our story for us or, you know, take what learning we can from them and try to move into something different. And I, I think throughout this chapter and really throughout the Hebrew Bible, the commitment of God to the covenant with a flawed people is really is messy and hard and, you know, has moments in it that I'm like, that, that's not how I want covenanted relationship to look like that's, (laughs) that's not, that's not how that should be. Like all that stuff is really real. And also it's, to have these moments where it's just this sort of calling back that like this covenant is still real. We've been through some stuff. You've done some stuff. Maybe I've done some stuff, but we can still look ahead to the future in a mm-hmm. covenanted way is really, it feels really true to me. That feels mm-hmm. like a true, a true word about our messy, messy world. I love that, Amy. And I really love the way you started by framing that in terms of God taking you by the hand and walking out into the world with you, which is like such a tender image Mm. and sort of, I mean, it's a reconciled image. It's an image that recognizes that some of the stuff that's in this text is a little bit scary and 
like, would you be able to go do that on your own? But mm-hmm. you, but you don't have to. Mm-hmm. I really that's I really love that. That's that's inspiring. What are you thinking as you read this text at this moment? Well, as has has been the case for the last couple of weeks, I'm trying to think about this in terms explicitly in terms of Advent. Yeah. I think what you've said is very Advent-ish as well. I was saying at the beginning of the text, when we were talking about the servant and we raised those possibilities, maybe this is Messiah, maybe this is the people. To me, that's a really helpful way of reading this text as a Christian in Advent is to say yes to both of those images. So in a Christian context that, you know, the servant, if we read the servant as Jesus and we think about like, what is Jesus like and what is Jesus about in the world, then here, here what we get is about justice and about bringing justice to the world, but in a gentle way that doesn't hurt those who are already wounded and is respectful of people who are losing their vigor and that is strong in himself to not be broken or extinguished even even while he's extending love to people who are hurting. Mm-hmm. I love that image of thinking about what Jesus is like. Like that's a Jesus that I can relate to much more than some of the more apocalyptic images of Jesus. I, I love this one. But what that thinking about the servant as the people and you know, I want to read it, I think, in the first instance as the people of Israel, in the Christian interpretation as the people of God, which includes then Christians. The question then is not simply like, what's Jesus going to be like, but what are we to be like? Yeah. So it's not simply that Advent then is about waiting for this Jesus to come into the world and be like this, yeah. but it is also about us becoming like this while we wait for Jesus to come into the world. And like, we, we know what it means. And so then you get these images of we should be in the world bringing about justice. We should be paying a special attention to those who are bruised and broken, those who are losing their fire for life, those who are imprisoned. We should be, you know, uh, making sure that people understand, opening the eyes that are blind to the way the world works and pointing out the injustices that are there and demonstrating a way of justice that's not about violence and retribution, but is about empowering those who have been wounded in the world. And that can then become an example for others. Like there's such a calling here, not just to say like, oh, this is what Jesus is like, but to say, this is who we could and should be. Mm -hmm. Connecting that with what you said about, and God is like there with arm outstretched saying, here, let me hold your hand and, and, and we'll do this thing together. Like, I, re- I really love that. So I get overwhelmed sometimes by the call to justice and like, am I really mm-hmm. capable of doing that? And that image is, yes, you are. And also God will be there with you. I just think that's a really uh, empowering, a really beautiful idea. And I think a, a good way to think about what, what Advent is. Mm. I love that. I love the way that you put together you put together those two readings here and in other places, you know, to, to be able to lean into both mm-hmm. Christian messianic readings and also lean into the text without reference to that and with a reference to reference to what came before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Amy. So next week we'll be in the fourth Sunday of Advent, which is Matthew's version of the birth of Jesus, which is a little bit different than Luke's version. 
And that will start us into the Gospel of Matthew, which is where we're going to spend the really the rest of the year, the spring until Easter anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, I look forward to it. I will Me miss too. my Hebrew Bible, but there's always interesting things to read in the New Testament too. Yes, yeah. it is true. And we'll get back to the Hebrew Bible soon enough. Yeah. Thanks, right. Amy. I'll see you next time. Have a great time. week. Bye. You too. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll continue with our final Advent text, reading Matthew's version of the birth of Jesus in Matthew 1, 18-25. Until then, keep on digging.